When Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, Israel turned to Assyria, to the great king there, but he could neither help nor cure them. I will be like a lion to Israel, like a strong young lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off and no one will be left to rescue them. Then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. For as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, now he will heal us. He has injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. Oh, Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Asked the Lord, for your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments and inescapable as light. I want, you to, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. First of all, Teresa, thank you for sharing. It's, it's going to be surprising how much... Jared and I tried to plan, but it was exactly what we're going to talk about today, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So thanks for sharing your heart. I really appreciate it. Let's uh, bow in prayer, and then we'll open up to Hosea 6 and 7. Let's pray. Dear God, I ask you, very simply, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit both on the reading and the listening of your word. Even as uh, was just read in Hosea, uh, the prophet's words are meant to tear us and change us and convict us. I pray, Father, that would we, we would take our eyes off of what we see and put our eyes on really who you are and what you want to do inside of us. You want to change us from the inside. You want us to be people of mercy and steadfast love, not people who perform and look good on the outside. I pray, God, that we would see Jesus. We would be able to really... um, not necessarily see him in face, but realize that he is right now real and alive and sitting at your right hand. And He wants to extend mercy and grace. He wants to help us in our time of need. He wants to love us. But we so often run from him and don't acknowledge him. We're too busy. Help us to stop and help us just to acknowledge how good he is. So, I need your help, God. We all do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you could open up to Hosea. We're going to be looking at different passages in 6 and 7. But I want to begin with a story. I was sitting on a large black shale rock 
by Lake Erie with a friend. I grew up right on Lake Erie, and one summer we had nothing to do, so we went down to the beach, and we decided to uh, spend the day there. It was the middle of summer. We were both bored, and there was no such thing at that time as smartphones with Snapchat or TikTok. So in order to entertain ourselves, we applied something which was quite popular at that time called conversation. <laughs> conversation is where one friend asks a question to another friend and they begin to talk about their personal ideas and opinions. It used to be the thing to do when I was a teenager. The topic we decided to talk about was church. He went to a small Baptist church in town. It had a roof on it like Pizza Hut. So people in town called it Pizza Hut Baptist Church. I went to a large Catholic church called St. Raphael's. It was a massive church. I mean, it really was with a vaulted cathedral ceiling. It was so beautiful, the bishop in our area, he would have the important masses there, as often an altar boy there. So I asked my friend what he did at Pizza Hut Baptist, and here's what he said. Not much. We sing a few songs. We pray a few prayers. We take the offering, and then we listen to a long sermon. And then we go home. I said, that's it? He said, yep, that's it. How about you? I then said, well, at my church, we do a lot of standing and sitting. We also have multiple priests who wear long white robes. We have old grandmas who light candles to pray for the dead. We have a 25-foot crucifix of Jesus hanging over the altar. There's a team of altar boys that get to carry giant crosses, ring golden bells, and present massive, a massive holy Bible to the priest to perform the liturgy. During the Mass, the choir sings, the congregation recites the Apostles' Creed. There's a missalette we read from with responsorial singing. We have a professional organist who plays the Phantom of the Opera after church. We have nuns in blue habits playing guitars, and whole families bring up water and wine, and of course we have the Eucharist. Wow, he said. Sounds like you guys do it right. After our conversation, I never thought about it before. But he made me feel pretty good about my religion. We did it right. In my mind, my religion was like the major leagues because we had it all, and we had the Pope who lives in the famous Vatican in Rome. All my friends' religion had was a tiny church that looked like a cheap restaurant and sang a few old dusty songs while having to listen to a long-winded sermon. Who wants to listen to an hour-long sermon? We had a homily. It was only 10 minutes, and that was enough for me. We did it right. I secretly at the time thought to myself, God must be proud of me. It's been 37 years since that conversation. And over the years, I have thought about it often. 37 years ago, I did not know God. I thought I did, but he was nothing more than a vague idea. My naive perspective was focused simply on the outward pomp and circumstance of the church, candles, crosses, and incense. But my inner life, it was dead. In my ignorance, I thought Christianity was something you measure and compare. 
It was all about looking and sounding holy and doing holy things. I had no idea, I had no idea that true religion was knowing a person. Today, our study is continuing in Hosea. And we're in chapter 6 and 7, and we're going to see how Israel ignored relationship and focused only on outward ritual and the religious show. That's why I have it titled Ritual, What's on the Outside, or Lion. And you'll understand that in a second. So I want to start here. Go to Hosea 6.6. 6. And I want you to camp on this verse with me for a second. You really need to understand this to me. This is the heart of this section. It's the beating, palpitating heart. And it, it kind of emanates forward and backwards from this section. I believe it pinpoints what God wants. Tells us exactly what God wants. But Israel wanted to give him something different. As we do, honestly. And here's what it says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what God wants is one thing. What they're giving him is another. And what it is, it's ritual versus relationship. This same verse is quoted over a dozen times in the Old and New Testament, this exact verse. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 9, 13, and listen to what he says. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So today we're going to learn what this means, and as we go through this passage, here's what I want you to ask yourself. How do you see your life with God? Which one do you choose? It is, all, is it all based on outward performance of following rituals, traditions? For us, in our denomination, service times? Is that all that matters? Or is it a life-changing encounter with a dangerous lion who must first tear you up and rip you to pieces in order to heal you? As Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. So as we can see, verse 6 is very clear. Israel was religious. They did. They did offer continual sacrifices in offerings, but they missed the point. You could say from a legal point of view, a religious point of view, they did things right. They brought their animals before the priest as it was prescribed in the book of the law, and they offered them as an act of obedience. Listen to Leviticus 1, 2, and 3. It's very clear. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So that's what God wanted them to do, and they're doing it. But it seems, according to this verse, God doesn't seem pleased. Why? 
And we're going to talk about the reason why is how religion works. The problem, even though they were supposed to be doing what they were told by God, it's how they did it. The problem with religion is, is not religion itself, not the actions, but what lies first in the human heart. If you're not careful with religion, you can substitute doing for knowing. Even in our own Baptist liturgy, you can go through the motions without, miss, without touching God. Rituals ask very little from you while making you feel like you've done a lot. That you've done enough to please God and you don't even know Him. It's amazing how this happens in our heart. In some ways, you could put it like this. Being a religious person is like being an avid sports fan. It is easy to buy the jersey and the banner, to walk to the stadium or watch the game on TV. It's easy to cheer and be sold out for your favorite player because you have no skin in the game. You're not shedding your blood on the field. It's easy to act like you win when your team wins, but when... But do you realize you had no, nothing to do with it? And so when they hold that trophy up in the end, they have no idea who you are. In the exact same way, if your view of religion only focuses on the outward ritual, you will not be in the game. Real faith requires you to wrestle with the person of God, to identify with the death of Christ, it's all about your heart. I want you to go to Galatians 4. We're going to go back to Hosea, so make sure you can get back there. But go to Galatians 4. This is a pivotal passage in Paul's theology. And listen to the wording. We're going to look at verses 8 and 11. 8 through 11. Galatians 4. Formerly... That means beforehand, when you did not know God. So he's identifying to the Galatians that there was a point in time when they did not know God. And when they did not know God, they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. There's no real entity there. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slave you want to become. What are those weak and worthless elementary principles? Well, here it is, verse 10. You observe days, months, seasons, and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, they're going through rituals. They're doing the religious duty, but they don't know God. It's natural. It's natural. So what I want to do is I kind of want to describe for you in a very honest way, this is not going to be politically correct, how outward religion keeps and I would say hinders a person from knowing God or inoculates you from having a relationship. I'm going to talk about my life and how religion uses what I would say it's illusionary magic to keep you from really knowing Jesus. It's amazing. I was really thinking through this because 
I've never really told it this deep. Growing up in a loving religious home, I truly loved the beauty and pageantry of the church. I loved it. The smell of the incense, the golden light of the sun shining through the multicolored stained glass windows is beautiful. I like the flicker of the votive candles that were often in the dark recesses of the spacious cathedral growing up. The sights and smells, they form great memories for me. When priests would walk down the aisle to eerie organ music with their flowing white robes, with their pious faces, they just seemed holy. I thought, as a kid, they must know God. They just seemed to know God. Even my grandmother said, they are specially blessed. So I held them in high honor because I just thought they knew God. They had the secret things of heaven. And then Sunday, of course, was God's day. At least for an hour it was. Our large family would put on our best clothes, harumph into the station wagon. Get in there. All right, Dad. We'd pile in and drive the church. Once we entered the building, our whole demeanor changed. It was showtime, so we began the proceedings by splashing holy water by doing the sign of the cross. We then entered slowly, heads down, into the sanctuary, demanded silence and reverence because we were now in the presence of God. No giggling, whispering, and definitely no hitting your sister. It's over. I noticed, I, you know, I looked around, I noticed that the really holy people genuflected before they sat down. As a kid, I felt awfully small. And God seemed to me to be untouchable and distant. He also seemed too big and important to care about a little boy like me. I followed the lead of the older people because the older people always seemed like they knew what they're doing. They were serious, I mean so serious, as they uttered memorized prayers and sang the same ancient songs week after week. For me, these prayers and songs meant nothing. But they sounded divine. So I said them. If I could endure, I thought in my little mind, if I could endure this hour of dry boredom while wearing an itchy sweater my mom always made me wear, and she'd, she'd spit part my hair, <laughs> I figured that God had to be pleased with me. He had to be. So I did my duty. Then it came time for the Eucharist. This is what it was all about. I was told and warned that Jesus himself was in the bread I was about to eat. A bell was rung. Some mysterious Latin was chanted in hush, dulcet tones. The priest handed the body of Christ. I often wondered to myself, wasn't allowed to say this to anybody, but I wondered to myself, how could Jesus be wrapped in a thin round stale wafer? But I wasn't allowed to ask that. But no worries, I was told once I ate it, I was free from God's anger and disappointment. I was assured that he would ignore all my recent sins. He agreed to forget them, but somehow I felt like he's still holding animosity against me. So I just followed the crowd. I ate the wafer with a prayerful face. I dutifully said, Amen. 
And then I sat back down in my seat knowing it's almost over. Ah, yes. It's almost over. Once out the door, it was time to go and sin some more. And I know that wasn't the purpose of church, but it is the result of doing a duty that never engages your will and heart. It doesn't change you. The older I got, the less I felt like I needed to go, but I went. Even if I sinned badly the week before, I still received the Eucharist calmly, believing God would forget. I never personally knew the priest, nor did he care about me. He was just there to give me a wafer. Over the course of years in this religion, I learned how to say the right words at the right time. I learned how to use special beaded necklaces and chant memorized prayers to ward off bad luck and stop menacing demons from giving me trouble. But if you were to ask me who was God and was he pleased with me, I had no idea. None. For me, he was untouchable. He lived very far away, and truthfully, I wanted him to stay that way. The farther he was, the less he'd get into my business. I figured the more I went to Mass, the more credit I earned. The more credit I earned, the holier I felt. The holier I felt, the higher up the stairway to heaven I must have climbed. And as compared to my complacent friends who often missed Sunday because they had hangovers, I had to be higher up the stairway. So... I continued to do my duty each Sunday. I kneeled, I sang the responsorial songs, I acted reverently, I thought I knew God, but I had no idea who he was. This is religion. But is this what God wants? Something about the whole religious thing started deeply troubling me. I started realizing, I really don't think God cares if a person sheds a tear because a ray of sunlight streams through a colored window. Anybody can cry at the sublime. Anybody can. That doesn't mean you know God. So in Hosea 7, he's going to talk a little bit about how do you know if you're religious. He gives three metaphors. If you go to Hosea 7, he's going to give us three illustrations, three pictures that I believe perfectly describe what the heart of a religious person's life. You might not have had the same experience I did, but you can be a religious in a Baptist church too. In this church, you can be religious. And so what Hosea is going to do is he's going to explain what, Hosea, what, what Israel's heart was like, these religious people who offered sacrifice but didn't know God. They're hot ovens, half-lip cakes, and silly doves. Look at 747. They are all adulterers, they are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. What is this like? Simply put, this means that their outward religion cannot stop the hot passion of lust that burns on the inside. If you simply focus on the outward rituals, 
You will never take the time to examine your heart, and it's the heart where the problem lies. It's inside of us. You know you're religious. You know you're religious when you go to church acting holy on Sunday, but Friday night and Saturday you burn with lust. Sure, pray like you mean it on Sunday, but if you drink and swear and lust like a fiend the rest of the week, I don't think God hears you. Verse 6 and 7, verse 6, 7 says, they're still like Adam. They still have the old nature still in control. Half-lip cakes, look at 7, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the people. Ephraim is like a cake not turned. You've made pancakes where you flip it and the dough is cooked on one side, but it's raw and uncooked on the other. This is the picture, half-flipped. In other words, a religious person is fickle. When they are with the people of God, they act holy. They're cooked on one side. But when they're with the world, they get raw and gooey and raunchy. They are like, as Revelation 3.16 says, lukewarm. Actually, look at Hosea 6.4. It describes it perfectly. Hosea 6.4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. You know you are religious. You know you're religious when you won't really commit your life fully to God, but you're good at acting like you are. And then the third thing is silly doves, 7, 11 through 15. Ephraim's like a dove. Silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria as they go. I'll spread over them my net. I'll bring them down like birds of the heavens. I'll discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall, this shall be their decision in the land of Egypt. One writer puts the silly dove metaphor like this. Have you ever been dove hunting? A dove with a nest with eggs or little ones will act as if she is a broken wing and tries to get the predator very close to her to give her help. But this move isn't smart because it brings the predator both closer to the net and her. So she endangers herself and the nest by putting both in harm's way. Now here in this passage, Ephraim refused to run to God for help, but went back and forth from Assyria to Egypt seeking help like a silly dove. So you could say it like this, religious people will try anything to look like they're seeking God's help without it, whether it be saying silly prayers, kissing statues, getting food blessed, crying and acting pious on a holy day, fasting from meat, looking for signs in the sky, or even wearing gold chains to ward off bad luck. They will try every foolish outward ritual while never really turning to God. You know you're religious when you fall for anything just because someone says it's the spiritual thing to do. God doesn't want your religion. 
So what does he want? What does he want? Look at Hosea 6.6 again. It's so clear. It's clear as a bell. For I desire. This is what I want. This is God's heart. I desire steadfast love. Another word for that is mercy for others, justice for others. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. He wants you to know him and to love others. And he beats this like a drum all through the book of Hosea. He just wants you to know him. That's all he wants. They asked Jesus, I want you to go to Mark 12. This is... Jesus will quote this verse in Mark 12, but look, listen to the dialogue. This is one of the most famous discussions Jesus ever had. And it's Mark 12, 28 to 33. This is a tremendous dialogue. So a scribe came up to him, a very religious man, a very knowledgeable man of Judaism. Verse 28 of Mark 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment's the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is none other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors, oneself, is much, and this is Hosea 6.6, 6, is much more than a whole burnt offering and sacrifice. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But how do I get there? How do I get there? As a religious person, that's my natural question. What must I do to get there? That's the whole problem. Religion always looks for a road, some man-made paved road, some secret path, some stairway to climb. But there's nothing you can do. Or deserve to be in the holy presence of God. As Romans says, all of us fall short of his glory. So in order to know him, we need him to come to us. And honestly, this is where it gets scary. Look at how Hosea describes in Hosea 5, 13. Through up to 6. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent the great king. But he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. You're sick. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. The remedy for religion is not in doing but in acknowledging, that means admitting guilt. This is not a religious 
It's not religious, it's not ritual, it's surrendering before an encroaching lion. Knowing full well he has every right, he has every right, and he has the might to tear you to pieces. He's a white fang, sharp clawed lion who has come to claim you. He wants you. In the context of Hosea, Israel was offering sacrifices. They were religious, but they were rotten to the core. And in their rottenness, God needed to let them first experience rottenness. He did it by letting go. We talked about that three weeks ago, and reap the rewards of their rebellion. All right, if you want Assyria, go ahead. They needed to see how sick they were, and they needed to feel their guilt. This is not religion. This is not following a set of rituals. This is simply a face-to-face -face confrontation with the living God. Now listen to Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Once they feel guilt, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. For he has struck us down, and he will bind us. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The difficult thing about knowing God, and this is honestly where it really gets hard, he is the main actor. He initiates, he hurts, he heals, and he alone revives. And you're the sick patient, and you can't heal yourself. And this does not play well for the religious person because there's nothing you can do but admit your sin. That's all you can do. There are no steps, no stairway, no you can accomplish anything you want. All you got to do is try. There is no believe in yourself and reach for your dreams. There's none of that. This passage only says turn. So honestly, right? I have no steps. I have nothing impressive to give you, just the truth that we're sick. And we're dying. And God is the only one who can help. Look at it like this. If I had the coronavirus, say I had it right now, I could not get rid of the coronavirus by being a good person. I could not exercise more. I couldn't take supplements and vitamins. I can't think positively to get rid of the negative. I need a cure. I need a vaccine. Or I either can have a vaccine or if I choose, I can try to suffer through it. Let it work through my body. Hopefully I'm young enough that it might throw me in a bed of pain for a week, but then I'm done with it. This in Hosea is talking about a different disease. It's called sin. Rebellion against God. Religion won't fix it, just like vitamins and supplements and hard work won't fix it. In fact, if you do religion, often you cover it and it will make it worse, thinking you're doing something. So you have two choices. You can let, you can let sin do its work, kind of like letting the coronavirus go through you. But here's the problem with letting sin do its work. It takes an eternity of suffering to finally work it out. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. So you're never going to work it out of your system. 
or you can access the vaccine. What vaccine? Well, it's directly hinted at here in chapter 6. It's odd, word, odd word, wording. I think it's, you could say it's coincidental, but I think it's intentional. Let me read it again. It's verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Huh. Three days, what do you think this is referring to? Well, there's two, there's two uh, interpretations. The first could be an historical interpretation. Israel had been taken out of the promised land three times. Each time they were taken out was for punishment. First time they went to Egypt, and they were brought back to the promised land. Then they were taken out to Assyria and Babylon for 70 years in captivity to be punished. Then they are brought back to the promised land. And then A.D. 70, Herod, after, he, after the Jews rejected the coming Christ, they destroyed Herod's temple. The Romans scattered them. And now Israel's coming back. And people would say this is now at the end of the third captivity and the later reign will come. Or there's another interpretation, or a both-and interpretation. The other interpretation is that three days could, it could be in reference to a statement Jesus made. In Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in other words, full restoration when the later day rains come, full restoration for the sickness for sin was accomplished when Jesus died on a cross and was buried in three day, for three days and rose again. Jesus died a horrible death. He was torn to pieces for your sin and my sin. He was buried three days, and on the third day he rose again to bring us to God so we could live before him. Jesus died for me. This is not religion. This is realizing a person died for me. God allowed his son to be torn up so I could be healed. So instead of looking at candles, stained glass windows, silver crosses on golden chains, we are to look to the broken and bloodied man hanging on the wooden cross that was for me. There's nothing you can do. Because by his death, everything has already been done. Your sin put him there. You're guilty. Admit it. The end of my story is simple. I lost my religion. When I was 23, I was tired of playing religion. I was worn out, to be honest. It was at that time that I knew I had to decide, and here was my decision. Was Jesus and his death real or not? Honestly, I had to wrestle with that. Did he rise from the dead or not? I figured if the answer was no, then all my years of doing religion was, <laughs> was playing a game. But if the answer is yes, then his suffering is my fault.
I was guilty. I was responsible for the death of the perfect man from heaven. I had to let that sink in. And I, I'll, it took me a while to really accept it. But once I realized, this is about me. Jesus Christ was painfully killed because I was nothing more than a half-baked cake and a silly dove. It was all my fault. Honestly, I'm no longer religious. I am on one end ashamed. On the other end, I am so grateful, I can't even tell you. Are you? Honestly, are you grateful that the perfect person from heaven suffered hell 